How did the early church grow? Now, I know we've been mostly in the Old Testament in this series, but when you hear Marty talk about Acts 2.42 and Acts 2.47, you know that there are some summary verses that talk about what the church did in its infancy. We're going to talk about one of the problems that they had to face uh, in, in today's session. I, uh, like I said, we were in Missouri till last night, and um, one of the family members, uh, uh, after we kind of got together for breakfast, headed over to Branson. If you've ever been to Branson uh, and gone to a restaurant that has waiters or waitresses, it's interesting because most of the people that wait tables over there will say, I'm trying to break into the music business. Have you noticed that? In fact, there's one restaurant where you can eat where they'll sing to you at your table. Uh, and it's somebody that's kind of breaking into the music business. Uh, uh, it, if, if you go to Los Angeles, you'll hear uh, people out there say, well, I'm really not, this job is really not my job. I'm trying to get a TV gig or uh, I'm trying to break into motion pictures or something. Isn't it interesting that when somebody says to you they're looking for their big break, uh, you and I probably never met a person who had a successful acting career but were biding their time until they got a big break to get into the waiting tables business. It just kind of doesn't go that way, does it? Well, this isn't, uh, you know, uh, you don't hear Tom Cruise saying, yeah, but I really want to wait tables. That, I mean, that doesn't happen. Okay? The early church had been taught a value of the kingdom of God that serving others was not beneath them. But there was more than one value at stake, one value in the issue, in the situation that we're going to address today in Acts 6. It's actually one of my favorite New Testament chapters because it tackles this, this issue. The way the apostles handled it um, is nearly miraculous. It certainly shows their insight and wisdom and courage, and it's remained um, insightful, seen as insightful throughout the centuries. Um, so we're going to focus today on the early days of the church in Jerusalem. The memory of Jesus was still vividly strong. It had just been a few months since the cross and the resurrection. The church consisted of um, Christians from Jewish background only at this time. Now think about this a little bit. It was all formerly Jewish people who still considered themselves Jewish that were living in Jerusalem. And the church was centered uh, mostly around Jerusalem. The gospel had yet to be extended to the Gentiles. That won't happen for another couple of chapters. But a common religious background didn't mean that they were all uniform in doctrine and in practice. For example, the scriptures clearly had stated that widows and other needy people in the family needed to be cared for. You can find that in places like Isaiah 1. But there wasn't a uniform understanding of how the, this kind of benevolence program ought to be handled, who ought to fund it. So, if you remember, even Jesus had some really harsh words for people who would divert uh, some of their giving money um, for, a, for kind of a more 
utilitarian pur purpose and didn't take care of their families. You remember, he had said some pretty harsh things about that. So the first church, the first century church in Jerusalem recognizes its obligation to provide daily sustenance, care, food for, um, uh, for its widows, for instance, if there were any orphans among them, that kind of thing. But that kind of ministry needed some oversight. We'll, we'll kind of drill down on why that's the case. It needed some oversight. It was pretty complex. And so far, it was shouldered by the leaders of the movement who were the 12 apostles. So far. That's where we find ourselves at the dawn of Acts 6. And uh, they're going to kind of have that oversight. But they realize that this was taking way too much of their time. And something had to be done about that. And so that's what we encounter in Acts 6, verse 1. Steve Blair, would you please read uh, to get us started the first four verses of that chapter. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, now, it mentions the twelve. Okay, let's unpack just for a minute. We've got to think a little bit about who the twelve was. This was the... Jesus' 12 original disciples, now known as the sent ones, the apostles, okay? They had a unique role in all the church and will have until all of their death, which, by the way, all of them died a martyr's death with the exception of one, and that was John. So the 12 gathered together. Now, the 12 is, is going to be missing one, right? Which one? Judas. But if you read Acts 1 and 2, they um, voted in a new apostle, and his name was Matthias. Okay, so it will be that 12, the, the original 11, excluding Judas, and adding Matthias. So they got together, and they've, they've dis discovered, they, they've uncovered that they've got this issue going on. Now, all of the people in the church were of Jewish background. The distinction here is that some identify themselves at least secondarily with the Greek culture. They speak the Greek language, and, the Greek, and they kind of uh, are from the Greek culture that predominates outside of the borders of Israel, while others identify more with the Hebrew language and culture that predominates within Palestine, within Israel proper. Ju Jerusalem is a magnet for Jewish people all over the world. In fact, uh, one of the things that's implied here, but is not clearly stated, that we've got to deal with. And, and I just kind of came up with this maybe uh, 10 or 15 years ago as I started thinking through this passage. When you think of the 12 apostles, and you think of maybe 500 disciples that we talk about in 1 Corinthians 15, maybe on uh, the Mount, um, on um, when, when Jesus was... Um, um, uh, taken back to heaven in Acts 1, maybe 500 people in that immediate disciples group, okay? 
the church was at least that big. But what you got to realize is that as of Acts 2, and we're in 6, as of Acts 2, the church added 3,000 in a day and their families. This was 3,000 men. It could be that by Acts 6, the church had grown to over 10,000. And recognize that people had come into Jerusalem for the Passover and for the other feasts that followed, even the Feast of Pentecost, and they stayed there. They didn't come planning to stay. So what did they have to kind of provide for these thousands of people that flooded Jerusalem and, were in, and encountered the gospel and were changed by it and stayed in Jerusalem? They got to have housing. They got to have food. So they've got a huge issue on them, including this issue of whether or not the, um, the Grecian widows were getting the same care as the um, Israelite widows. There's kind of a charge of bias uh, on the, the part of the Hebraic Jews in the daily distribution of food. So they uncover this idea and they say, we got a problem on our hands. And what I love about the apostles is they look, look around the table and said, uh, who's going to deal with this? And they, and they say, guys, we got we to handle this. I love that about them. Now, look at verse 2. There's some observations about verse 2, what is said in verse 2. They're realizing whether or not this problem is subjective or objective. You know, sometimes you're in a meeting and somebody brings up a problem and, and you kind of roll your eyes. Like, come on. Whether or not that was going on, we don't know. So whether it was a subjective need or whether it was a real need, an objective need, I can only infer that it's a, an objective need. Something had to be done. All right? There is, what you've got to understand is among the 12, there is no attentional, intentional bias. There's, this is untrue. So put the word untrue in that second line. Something must be done. Intentional bias is untrue on the part of the 12. They wouldn't do that. And largely then, they, they kind of uncover the idea that this is largely a manpower issue. They got a lack of enough time to both minister the word of God, to be uh, 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 eyewitnesses of the resurrection with anybody that'll listen to them. So ministering the word of God, teaching people, to, uh, telling them about the good news about the gospel. They don't have enough time to do that at, at the point that needs to be done or, or to the extent that needs to be done and wait on uh, tables as well as what they say. So, um, sometimes, anyway, so they call a meeting of, I'm going to assume here, they call a meeting of the kind of inner circle, which is about 500 people, we think. Okay, so imagine a room of this size, we jam 500 people in it, and uh, the apostles say, probably Peter's the spokesman, he says, guys, we've got we to handle the problem, how are we going to do it? You know, there comes a time in, in every one of our jobs and certainly in of our, our ministry where I've got to ask some hard questions about what, how I'm spending my time. And typically for me, since back in the days when I was on this staff, I, I was given a question that, that I um, 
that stays with me and that on, in our group, we ask each other occasionally, what can I pass off to other people to do so that I can do what only I can do? You catch that? What can I encourage and uh, commission other people to do so that I can do what only I can do? Okay? Maybe that would be helpful. You need to be selling insurance. So you got people back at the office who kind of do all the paperwork. And I bet you drive them absolutely crazy, don't you? Day by day. Okay, day by day, all right. So you got that, all right. Uh, back in the day, I didn't do it well, but I dug the ditch so dad could do all the brain work. And then he'd have to come and fix the ditch because I didn't dig it right, you know, so, but, okay. What can you do, what can somebody else do so that you can do what only you can do? That's a huge question. That's kind of what they're dealing with here. All right, so, when, I think it's interesting when the, when the apostles call this group together, they don't call them together and say, okay, guys, what are we gonna do? They've already got a plan in mind when they come together. I love that. They've already, they've prayed over it. They've thought about it. We gotta do something about this. What do we do? And they come up with this wonderful biblical plan and they take it to the 500 and they say, we're gonna have to choose some people who will address these needs. And they've even set a number. What's the number? Seven. So, the apostles already have a strategy, and, they, and what, I, what I want you to put in your outline, because it's just kind of important here, choose known men, known men. Now, so they choose seven leaders. They have to be known, known according to verse three, known for what? Character, filled with all the spirit, they're spiritual people, so that, some of those things, and they have to have a reputation, the right kind of reputation. Now, I put the reference of Acts 5 in there. They've already had some trouble in the previous chapter with people that they put kind of leadership in their hands, and they were liars. That's awful to think about that happening five chapters into the church, but it happened, and it had devastating effect. Read about it. So, they want known character people. So, in verse four then, they're talking about, we're gonna do this so that we can do what we gotta do and what we've gotta do, the apostles have to do, they have to be people of action and of prayer. Now, here's my question. In whatever ministry you're involved in, and I've been asking you for 13 weeks now to think about what God might be calling you to do, in whatever ministry God is calling you to do, or just in life in general, is prayer inactivity? I'm looking at two people that I'm nuts about right over here that I get to work with on a daily basis when they're not out running the country, and, and uh, which they have been until a couple days ago. Maybe, did you get home yesterday? Okay. Um, we stopped for 30, 45 minutes, sometimes an hour on Monday morning and have prayer in our staff. And I wonder if some think, that's a waste of time. 
is prayer inactivity. The apostles don't think so. They say, what we've got to do is pray. We've got to have time to pray to get our marching orders from God. And we've got to have time to minister the word. So that's where they lead this thing. Now, by the way, if you're in that position of thinking, oh, you know, I've got 65 things to do. I don't have time to pray about that. I just got to get it done. I used to have a friend in eastern Kentucky who was uh, uh, a dear, sweet fellow who's now in heaven who would say, well, I've got 100 things to do today and I've got to take a nap. I think I'll get that out of the way first. I've got a hundred things to do today, and I've got to pray. I think I'll do that first. That's what the apostles said. Okay, so let's go on now. So these, these leaders, the, the apostles, need to be people of both action and prayer. Cindy, can I get you to pick up at verse 5? You get to read all the big names. Just, just fake your way through it. It's good. Yeah, yeah. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. You've heard of two of these guys. You've heard of Stephen. What's his distinction in the rest of the Bible? First Christian martyr. We're going to read about that at 8 and 9. Philip is another one. Now this is not the Philip. I'll put a reference in here, 21.8. Uh, this is not Philip the Apostle one of the original disciples. This is the one that the Bible typically calls Philip the Evangelist. He's, he's called that in 21.8. Um, he's the one who in, uh, um, in uh, Acts 8 leads the Ethiopian to Jesus, to faith. Uh, you remember the story? It, the guy is, uh, he's uh, riding in his chariot and he stops and he's reading the Bible, reading Isaiah, and Philip is translated over there. He just shows up over there. The Holy Spirit just takes him there. And he said, then the guy says, he says, what are you reading? And he says, I'm reading this. And he reads it out loud to him. He says, are you, uh, he says, what my curiosity is, is this guy talking about himself or somebody else? And right there, Philip shares Jesus with him. And they find a mud puddle and he's baptized right there. Is there any reason why I can't be baptized? No, absolutely not. And that starts a revival in Ethiopia. Isn't that nuts? It's just it's got a, a high government official. That's Philip the evangelist. Here's my point. Philip was not, he didn't wear reverend in front of his name. He didn't wear apostle in front of his name. He was like us. He had a calling too. Philip the evangelist was a layman in this list of seven laymen, including Stephen and others that Cindy did a really good job of pronouncing. The implication of that is obvious. We've all got a calling, don't we? 
I was with a family member yesterday who was talking about an aunt who's elderly and an uncle who is not well in a place far away. The place where I've been, kind of know about the church, and, and I actually know most of the staff at this church. It's a church of, Morgan, you say 360, 400 people? Okay. It's not a huge church, but not a small church. That's a great, healthy-sized church. Are we back now? There we go. Um, and so this, this uh, sister-in-law I was saying, you know, my aunt just has her hands full. She can't go to church anymore because she's got to take care of my uncle. And nobody in the church checks on him ever. I said, well, how long have they been a part of that church? Her whole life. There's something kind of not right about that. And I'm glad our church is not that way. You see, the issue is, uh, by the way, if I, if I do anything about this, and I'm not sure I'm going to do anything about it or not, but if I do anything about this, I'm not going to say to the senior pastor who's a friend of mine, I'm not going to say, Steve, you need to go see this lady. I'm going to say, would you just send somebody to see her? That's all that's important. That somebody doesn't lose contact in the church with a saint who's been around the church for her entire life and needs the church right now. How many times, guys, over the years have I done funerals here for people who have all their life given and served at other churches and their church lost touch with them when they went to a nursing home or whatever? I'm glad our church doesn't do that. I'm glad our church addresses that kind of thing. I'm honored to be a part of the church like that. And I want to continue to be a part of that. So the issue is, the apostles say, we got to delegate authority. Wise leaders know the importance of delegating authority and responsibility. So they do that. And in verse 6, then, they call these new seven leaders, and they recognize their calling. You can put that first there. These leaders are recognized, and they're kind of commissioned. 13.3 and 13.3, that's the same thing they did when, guess who? Barnabas and a guy by the name of Saul was put to work. They laid hands on him and sent him out. Same thing with these seven. By the way, my mother, often when I was in trouble, would say to me, I'm going to lay hands on you without prayer. Okay? <laughs> Different deal. All right. She knew this passage. Okay. So... They're commissioned, they're sent out, they're recognized. Now, verse 7 is key here, and I want to spend the remainder of our time really talking about verse 7. There's a two-letter word that could be the most important part of this whole section. The word, so. When I'm reading the Bible and I come up with uh, a therefore, this is kind of a therefore. When I'm reading the Bible and I come up with and I read a therefore, I need to kind of look back a little bit and see what the therefore is there for, okay? When I'm reading a so, I need to say, okay, so all this stuff in verse one through six happened so that what happens in verse seven can take place. Catch that? So what happened then was at least three things. 
What's the secret to what happened in verse 7? It's what they did in verse 1 through 6. Okay? The secret was we saw a need and we organized to meet it. And it's really important that they did that and that we emulate that. The church got organized and a lot of people got in the game. And because of that, here's what happened. At least three things that are talked about in verse 7. The apostles were able to preach. They were able to pray and preach, do what they could only do. Okay? Secondly, the number of disciples grew. Do you notice this? That it had already grown on the day of Pentecost, but it was like, uh, to, to borrow a term from Martin David Grubbs, it was like somebody poured jet fuel on it. It just got set afire. The number of disciples grew. And third, the growth included who? Priests. Don't discount what that is saying right here. There are a lot of those who formally administered the sacrifices in the temple. Uh, by the way, what's the problem with that deal now? The temple veil was rent in twain. You remember at the resurrection? Or at, at, at actually the uh, cross when Jesus died? I think a lot of these guys are out of work. And they begin to think about, you know, we believe that right in this period of time, the sacrificial system went away. Certainly by A.D. 70 or so, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. What are all those priests going to do? Those who had, for years in their lives, taken some family's uh, live sacrifice and had offered it, begin to hear the apostles talk about there is only one sacrifice for all. And many of them came to faith. Incredible. Incredible. Can you imagine? The priest over family after family after family comes to faith in Christ as the Paschal Lamb, as the great high priest, and they begin to talk about that? That also contributed to the expansion of the gospel. Now, verse 8 certainly talks about Stephen. And his effectiveness was evident. Okay, so. I've been talking to you for 10 or 12 or 13 weeks. About how you might find something that God is calling you to do. We've looked at examples of God's calling all over the Old Testament. And we've looked today at how people got in the game early on in church life and therefore the church grew. So, how I want to challenge you at the end of this series, at the end of our time today, we've got about five or six minutes left. Here's what I'd like to happen on Monday morning or even on Sunday afternoon. You ready? There is a, a portion of the worship folder that includes volunteer opportunities for this week, okay? There are other things where you can read about it in there. I look at it every week. It's like, we're needing somebody to get involved in this. We're needing somebody to get involved in this. You heard Marty say, oh, a month or less ago, they're really needing workers in children's ministry, nursery ministry. Take a look 
Ask God. And here's what I want you to do. I would love for you to jam the email inboxes of volunteer ministry people tonight and tomorrow. Just jam it. Where did all this come from? Okay? Just, if, even if it's just once to get in the game that way. Maybe there's something that has touched your heart and you've thought, okay, is God calling me to this? Try it. Provisionally, at least, try it. I, I left the statement at the bottom, or the question at the bottom of your page. What could you do for God if you were turned loose? And I want you to go with me as we close out this series to John 14, 12. It's become very important to me. John 14, 12 has become very important to me. And we're going to read it together as we close this series out. I began to think this last week on the subject, what is our collective ministry? What is your individual ministry? And I began to think about the last night of Jesus' earthly life. He's with the 12. Eventually in that dinner in the upper room, Judas is dismissed to go on and betray him. How hard would that be? But it doesn't divert the Lord from his main task of that night of giving them final instructions and final encouragement. I wonder if he said to them at dinner, you know guys, this is the last meal we're going to have together. It's not only called the Lord's Supper, it's called the Last Supper. And I wonder if they begin to reminisce about things they had seen over the last three and a half years. If, while they were together uh, do you suppose Peter, who was in the room, said, Lord, remember the little girl? It was dead. And I watched you bring her back to life. Uh, maybe James said, who, by the way, James wouldn't live much longer. Maybe James said, Lord, do you remember when you took just us three and, and we met on the Mount of Transfiguration, we just kind of wanted to stay because we met these great patriarchs, these great leaders in the Old Testament. You remember that? Uh, do you suppose that um, they talked about a couple of long-distance healings that you and I can read about in the, the Gospels? Maybe one of them brought up the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe that was Andrew. He was kind of pretty instrumental in that. Lord, do you remember when we took one kid's Happy meal and, and fed 5,000 people with it. <laughs> That's kind of what it was. And then somebody probably said, remember just a couple of days ago, you brought Lazarus back to dead after being in the tomb for way too long. And there was a collective wow. And then Jesus told them, John 14, 12. Cindy, can you read it? I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Talk about a wow. Get out of town. You gotta be kidding me. 
No, I mean it. There are the things that you and I have talked about are nothing compared to what you guys are going to do when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he's upon us in this room. So, what are you going to do with this? How are you going to get in the game? Watched a movie this week. I don't, I never recommend, these aren't endorsements, okay? They're just things that I get interested in. Watched a movie this week about a middle-aged salesman for a company in decline. Fewer and fewer people were buying Prince Castle multi-mixers and preferring a lower-cost product sold by another company. But this guy notices a small restaurant that ordered five of his multi-mixers, and uh, then they actually upped their order to eight before he ever got the five uh, delivered. And so he goes across country from Illinois to California to see what these guys are doing. And he meets the McDonald brothers. And he watches their assembly line method of producing hamburgers that they call the speedy service system. And because hamburgers were produced there quickly and inexpensively, uh, customers streamed in and they bought not only burgers, but they started buying milkshakes. And Ray Kroc, that's the guy, saw the possibilities ahead for the McDonald brothers. He joined their enterprise. And McDonald's restaurants were born because... A struggling salesman was having difficulty selling blenders. Is it time for you to get in the game somewhere? I guarantee you, if we made dozens of phone calls today and tomorrow and Tuesday to the church office saying, okay, plug me in. I think we're organized enough to where those calls will be answered with, okay, let me, let me tell you about several opportunities. I do believe, I've said it every week for the last 12 weeks or so. You are being called. Maybe you've already accepted that call. God bless you. We'll pray for each other. If you have not yet gotten in the game, think it might be time. <laughs> I think of uh, the, the much ballyhooed story about uh, Steve Jobs who knocks on the doors of um, the head of PepsiCo years ago when, when, um, when uh, Apple Computers was just uh, really fledgling, tiny. And he goes to John Scully. He wants, he wants to get him to come over and work for Apple Computers. John Scully's the CEO of PepsiCo. He's got, all, he's got his hands full. It is actually, in those days, Pepsi outranked Coke in, in sales. They had passed them. I don't know how that happened, except John Scully was the answer. And, and Steve Jobs goes to John Scully and basically says, when he's kind of turned down, he says... Uh, I've just got to ask you a question. You've heard this, haven't you? You want to spend the rest of your life making sugar water? Or do you want to come with me and change the world? You know the rest of the story. They changed the world. What are you now doing that is bringing honor and glory to the kingdom of God? 
It's never too late to start. Today may be your day.